Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Good morning again. I wanted to make sure that you guys felt especially invited to that family meeting this Wednesday. Um, it's going to be an awesome time for you to be able to have a chance to hear from Pastor Ron Swor. Um, just regarding not only where we've been, but especially where we want to be headed here as we endeavor to make more disciples and create spaces for that to happen. And so um, I encourage you, this Wednesday, 6.30, right here in this space, do make a point to come out. I believe you'll be well rewarded for that. Well, uh, this weekend we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John. We're going to be picking it up in John chapter 18, looking at the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. There's a lot I want to cover today, and so let's pray and get into the text. Heavenly Father, help us remain faithful to Jesus. Amen. John chapter 18 is this, uh, is this important chapter for us, but let's go ahead and set the stage, okay? Uh, Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God who was born to the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life even though he was tempted in every way just as we are. And he lived in a small area in the Middle East. Most people believe that he never traveled more than about 100 miles from his hometown, always on foot. He developed a band of followers. We call them today his disciples. And they would go from place to place, and Jesus would preach about the kingdom of God, and he would heal the sick, and he would cast demons out of those who were oppressed. And he repeatedly and explicitly claimed to be God. He had this special relationship with God. And unlike most people who make similar claims, the people who were closest to Jesus, even his own family, actually believed him, which in itself is something of a miracle. You can imagine how it would go for you if you decided one day to start making claims of divinity. But Jesus was unique among everyone else in the world that has done this because he actually could do miraculous signs and wonders to give evidence to the fact that he had come from God. And so those that were closest to him, including the leader of his band of followers, Peter, would make these tremendous claims of allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus. In fact, it was Peter who said, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus knows all things including the hearts of men and women, and he looked into and through Peter, and he said, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? He said, truly, truly, I say unto you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this night until you have denied me three times. Now, that happened in John chapter 13, which was the beginning of that upper room discourse where Jesus gathered his disciples together for the last supper that they would share together before Christ's crucifixion. So John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17 are all Jesus' last words to his disciples as he prepares them for his ultimate departure. And it's interesting to note that most of what he talks about during that time is the Holy Spirit, who would come to be... God within us after Christ had left. So when we pick up the scene in John chapter 18, you've got to understand that geographically we've moved around a little bit. We used to be inside the city walls of Jerusalem here, but we've exited, we've gone across the Kidron Valley to the east and north to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was probably a walled olive grove, and Jesus was known to be there 
pretty frequently, which is why Judas knew where to look for him. Jesus spends the entire night in prayer. This is prior to the night of his betrayal and arrest. And then during that night, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, comes with a band of Jewish and Roman authorities, swords and clubs and lanterns, and they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. This is what Ron covered so ably last week. And Jesus comes out and says, I am he. And in the, in the confusion and the chaos of this whole moment, Peter, bless him, takes out a sword and he chops off a man's ear. Which, rough. But Jesus reaches down and he heals this man and, and, and quells this commotion. And so they clap him up in chains and handcuffs and they haul him away. And at that moment when the disciples see that Jesus has been now handed over to wicked men, they all whoosh, flee, just like the wind. Three years of having followed the living son of God and when times get tough, whoom, out of there. And so Jesus is taken probably across the north edge of the city, back into the city gates to the palace of the high priest, a man called Annas, who was um, the father or kind of the, the patriarch of a family of high priests. He had actually... Um, left his post officially about 15 years prior to this incident, but he was still held in such high esteem that the Bible still refers to him as the high priest. So that's where we're at when we pick up the story in John chapter 18. Jesus is on the doorstep of death. He's bound and he's handcuffed, and he is literally hours away from his death on a cross. That's where we pick up in John chapter 18. You can turn your Bibles to chapter 18, verse 15. We'll read through verse 27. The Bible says that Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made themselves a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret, so why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said." When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, well, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about that wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, well, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now, on the surface, the action is pretty easy to follow. Peter and the other disciple there is most likely John, the man that wrote this gospel. They follow Jesus into the courtyard of Annas, the high priest. And apparently because John knew Annas, he went into the courtyard. Peter somewhat reluctantly remained outside, probably because he had just attempted a murder. 
John, sensing that Peter didn't come in with them, goes back out, talks to the servant girl, and brings them both back in. But as they're crossing the threshold of the courtyard, the woman there, watching the door, looks at Peter and says, hey, wait a minute, hold on, hey, aren't you with him? No, I'm not. Keep on moving, Peter. Play it safe. All right, so they move inside, and now we turn to Jesus, who is, who is there, and he's with Annas, and he's bound by soldiers all around, and they begin to question him. It's interesting about his disciples and his teaching. And he says, listen, you've got to understand, everything that I've done in public ministry has been public. I've taught in your temples and in your courtyards and in your synagogues. So if you want to know what I've spoken about, simply ask anyone. It's all out there for the world to see. Jesus is not a cult leader. Everything that you want to know about Jesus, he's plainly spoken. But this strikes the officer standing nearby Jesus as a bit too cheeky. And so he turns around and he strikes Jesus on the cheek, probably with the back of his hand. And Jesus gives him this little retort. And Annas is pretty easily seeing that this is not going anywhere. And so he ships Jesus off to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who's the current high priest. Meanwhile, back at this charcoal fire that Peter had cozied himself up to, did you notice that? There was a series of um, soldiers and servants, and they were standing back there. It was the middle of the night, and they bathed themselves a little fire. And so Peter snuggles up. We find him back there, and it's in this moment we see Peter begin to lose his faith. You see, one of them goes, hey, wait a minute. I think I recognize you. Aren't you with Jesus? Now, it's interesting if you compare this account, because it occurs in all four Gospels. If you take about a half hour, read through them all, you'll begin to find interesting details that certain Gospel writers draw out that others don't. I think it's Matthew who begins to identify that Peter was um, exposed because he had an accent. You see, Peter wasn't from Jerusalem. He was from Galilee. It was a region to the north. And he was a fisherman by trade. So something like my good friend here, Erin, she's from Mississippi. She's got a pretty strong accent. So I know that she's not from around here based on her accent. Everybody around her sounds totally fine. And we're the people that have accents to people in Mississippi. But to her, or to me, she sounds a little bit out of place. So they pegged Peter and said, your accent says you're a Galilean. So is Jesus. Aren't you with him? And Peter says, no, I'm not. But the straw that broke Peter's back was when the man who actually was a relative of the guy whose ear Peter cut off looks at him. He says, wait a minute. No, 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 no. No, you were there in the garden an hour ago. I saw you with the sword. You remember? Okay. You cut off my cousin's ear. I know you're with him. And it's the Gospel of Mark that tells us that Peter at this point, he swears violently and invokes a curse upon himself. And he says, I don't know this man you're talking about. And Luke tells us that at this moment, as Jesus is being led out of the courtyard, that he meets eyes, that they make eye contact, Jesus and Peter. And at once, the rooster crows. And the Bible says in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Peter went out and he wept bitterly for the realization of what he had just done. He had denied his Lord. There's one big idea I want to pull out of this text, and that's this. Be prepared for the testing of your allegiance to Jesus Christ so that you can remain faithful during times of trial. I'll say that again. Be prepared ahead of time for the testing of your allegiance to Jesus Christ so that you can remain faithful 
in times of trial. I want to look at how things really broke down for Peter. The Gospels paint a picture of Peter in pretty broad strokes. He's brash, he's loud, he's offensive. Artists throughout the years have used an image something like this to be able to tell you that Peter is a man who's older, a huge beard, a fisherman by trade. This man, subtlety and tact are not his strong suits. But it's from this man who's the leader of the disciples that we get some of the greatest testimonies of allegiance to Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. Let me give you three. Jesus will press his disciples for who they see him as. What is my identity? In Matthew 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter knew and understand that Jesus was more than just a man, more than just a good prophet, more than just a moral teacher. He was divine. He was from God. Later in John chapter 6, Jesus will say some of the most extreme things he says in the entirety of the Bible, and it drives a bunch of the people who are just kind of hangers-on away. They can't handle how intense Jesus was. And so Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples, and he says, you too, do you also want to flee? And it's Peter who speaks first. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now watch that progression there. If you're anything like me, during the course of your faith journey, you'll have encountered some significant intellectual hurdles to giving your life to Jesus Christ. And those are real. And those can be a serious stumbling block for you to be able to understand, all right, How am I supposed to handle this? Let Peter be your guide in this instance. Did you notice what he did? He said he believed. And then through believing, he came to know. There are certain things within this faith journey that we simply must take by faith. And sometimes in the giving of our faith, we begin to realize more and more the things that we couldn't see through natural eyes, God reveals to us through supernatural eyes because of our belief. Last one is this. We saw it earlier in John chapter 13. It's Peter, more than any of the other disciples, who says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. And hours later, what do we find with Peter? Denying Christ three times. And when we see him in that moment, just hours after he made that promise, we can't fault either the height of his spiritual understanding or the depth of his emotional commitment to Jesus. This was a guy who knew better. He knew all the right Christian things to say. He knew all the right Christian things to do. And yet he ends up in a mess, weeping bitterly for having denied Christ to people who asked if he was even associated with the man. And I've been there. I've drunk from that bitter cup, and it's a bummer. And so my question is, does the Bible have anything to say to us either as Christians or those who are about to be, how does someone who knows all the right things, can say all the right Christianese, put on a really good Christian show, but when it comes right down to brass tacks, you know what? He's not my king. What does the Bible have to say? I want to draw two observations out of the text that I pray will be hopefully relevant to us today. We're going to draw two and talk about one. In the moment of testing... Peter loved the comforts of this world more than he loved Christ. Now, I draw that from the fact that the text twice indicates where Peter was while Jesus was being cross-examined and abused. Did you guys catch that? 
There was a charcoal fire built over here, and he decided that it would be better and more comfortable for him to hang out with the soldiers than to hang out with Jesus. And so he decides to choose the comforts and the things of this world more than allegiance to Christ. And second, in the time of his testing, Peter also feared men more than he feared God. Did you notice that? Where did Peter really begin to break down? You've got to give him credit for at least following along. The 10 others weren't even around. But it's when it really came down to, do you belong to him? That Peter said, nope, I don't because I'm fearful of what you might do to me if I say yes. Let's talk about that first one. Why does, well, let me say this though. I've noticed, you'll notice that I've, I've phrased that the way that Peter's diagnosis is happening during the times of testing. I think in general, Peter's character is godly and his intentions are God-honoring. And I think probably that's the mostly, at least we desire to be that, most of us. So how do we end up where Peter ends up? Well, see, there's a truism about a test. A test functions to reveal what's inside of us. Is that right? You've been in school. You've thought you've been doing really well until the exam comes, and you have to close your book, and you have to produce what's inside of you now has to come out. That's a test. It functions to reveal what's inside of you. This sometimes works. It touches on our marriages sometimes. Have you ever said or maybe heard it said where a spouse will turn to the other and say, you know what? I used to be a, a really nice person until I met you. We somehow have a way of kind of projecting everything that's negative about us as a result of the other person's influence in our life. Let me tell you something. The negativity, the badness that you see in you, the not niceness that's now bubbling up in your marriage is not a result of your spouse. It's a result of the fiery trial that marriage is revealing what was always inside of you. That's why the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you've got to be really careful about what you say. Have you ever encountered a situation in which you've, you've made a complete gaffe? You've just said something that's totally off color. You've regretted it the moment it came out of your mouth. And you go back to that person and you say, you know what? I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. As though that was somehow, think about that idea. I didn't mean to say that. Well, what the Bible says is, actually you did. Because what came out of your mouth was what was really in your heart the entire time. Chances are you're politically correct enough, you're composed enough, you're polite enough to not say all of those things that you really want to say most of the time. It's only when the day is hard enough and long enough and frustrating enough and disappointing enough that the real you comes out. So pay attention the next time you say something and have to go back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. The truth of the matter is, yes, you did all along. It's just that now it finally got exposed. The test functions to reveal what's inside of us. And Peter's moment of testing, he failed because he desired the comforts and the wealth and the things of this world more than he desired his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And why is that such a big deal? Why did that trip a man so robust as Peter? It's because that stuff and the desire of acquisition of it has a way of shifting our perspective and our desires. Have you ever noticed this? We begin to lose sight of the eternal riches kept in heaven for us as part of the inheritance of the saints in light. 
and instead become very, very fascinated with that which glitters here and now. Those things, this is why Jesus refers to the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew 13. So the bottom line is, if you're banking on your bank account, the Bible says you're being deceived. And your capacity to follow Christ, especially during times of testing, is being eroded. But let me be clear. Money isn't the issue. Money isn't the issue. I grew up in a legalistic church environment in which it was thought that the poorer you were, the better off you were because you're somehow more spiritual. And it was a sign of weakness and worldliness to have nice stuff. So you can drive a car, but it better be a 1982 beaten down Subaru with rust up to the windows that barely works all the time. I think that's foolishness. Because God gives us richly all things to enjoy, and he asks us to steward them well. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But the deceitfulness of riches, you know why it's so deceptive? Is because we think that if our net worth is high, then our self-worth is also high. And that's not what the Bible says. You see, it's not money that destroys or the stuff or the acquisitions or your possessions. It's not money that destroys. It's the love of money that can destroy. And this is why the Bible from beginning to end warns repeatedly and explicitly about this unhealthy, earth-based, human-centered acquisition of wealth. From beginning to end, let me give you three examples. Proverbs 23 says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Those of you with any amount of capital in a house or in the stock market over the last four years know very well the feeling of watching wealth fly like an eagle towards heaven. Where did it go and how is it coming back? We have no idea. There, uh, they said that uh, during the financial crisis of 2008 and 9, 30% of America's wealth evaporated. You know that better than I do. It flies like an eagle towards heaven. Money is just money. It's not permanent. But notice this. In my generation, I think we really like this top line. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Aha! Finally, an excuse to be lazy. Look, mom and dad, I don't have to go get a job because the Bible says I don't want you to work hard. I'm being spiritual. I, I want to remain poor. So I'm not going to toil to acquire wealth. This is not what the Bible says. Okay? This is, not, this is not an excuse for you to live in your folks' house and let your mom cut the crust off your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches till you're 27. This is not what God has in mind for you. What he wants you to do is to be a young man or woman that has integrity, that can get up before the crack of noon, that can show up to work on time, that can outwork your, your, your fellow employees, that can be a person of integrity so that you receive advancement. But here's the deal. When you follow God's parameters laid out in Scripture for how you ought to behave in the workplace, you will typically find success. The question is, how much success do you need? And this is where this verse tells us. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. What did Paul say in Philippians? He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am, whether rich or poor, how to be what? Content. And if we miss that word, then here's what will happen. We've all known the stress of being poor. 
and it stinks. So we work really hard not to be poor anymore. But at a certain point, the pendulum begins to swing back because it's really stressful to keep getting richer. We have what we need, but we still have this insatiable desire for more. And so you begin to work longer hours and your health deteriorates. And you work longer hours and your family life goes to pot. And you begin to do all of these things until you realize that the same stresses you had when you were poor come back to bite you when you're rich. The Bible says be discerning enough to know when enough is enough. The next one comes to us out of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is speaking. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I just bought a house. My wife and I did a month ago yesterday. It's a stick frame built on a concrete foundation. Seems pretty sturdy. I push it. It doesn't get knocked over. One day that house will either be burnt to the ground. It won't exist anymore. In fact, a couple of days ago, my wife comes home. Uh, this was last Sunday night or Sunday afternoon. I come home. It's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's raining outside. I find my wife on the back patio drinking a glass of water in a tank top in the rain. She's pregnant. What in the world are you doing? Next to her was this massive pile of horrible shag carpeting that was in our spare bedroom. It's just been laid in there probably in like the early Reagan administration. <laughs> Not lo- and it was horrible. And she got into mama bear mode because she finally needed this thing out of there. So she just ripped, moved furniture, desks, and beds, and all this kind of stuff, and just ripped this thing out of there. And I'm, I'm like, you did this in the 45 minutes it took me? What, what in the world? So I come home, so we realize we got to get the carpet out of our house, because we think it's killing us. So Monday morning, I show up, and get a buddy of mine down there, and we start working. Vroom, we cut into this carpet. When people had laid this carpet, the previous homeowners, I believe they desired that this was really going to be a big blessing to them. Carpet's nice. And guess what happened? You give it enough time, what am I doing to it? I'm breaking out a utility knife, and I'm ripping this thing up into six-foot squares, rolling it up, and tossing it into the back of a dumpster where it'll go to its final resting place to rot. And that was somebody's treasure. It's no different with the things that you think are really nice now. Moth and rust corrupt. So Jesus isn't against laying up treasure. He says, just be smart about it. Just be smart about it. Be a shrewd investor. Know what's really going to pay off in the long run. It's not this huge empire that you can build for yourself now. He says what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see the connection he's making between your money and your spiritual condition? Then this. You cannot serve God in money. Listen to the strength of those words. By definition, if you are serving money, who can you not serve? If you're serving money, by definition, who can you no longer serve? Last one is this, 1 Timothy. Put your helmet on, this is going to hurt. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. Now, that's a curious word, isn't it? A snare? You guys know what a snare is? It's a little wire loop used to catch animals, usually by the hind foot. Did the animal ever see the snare? No. This is why Jesus refers to riches as being so deceitful, is because you can think you're doing well, really, when you're so bound up, you have no idea that you've been caught in a snare. You never saw it coming. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a word picture for you. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, Peter, and have pierced themselves through with many pangs, Peter, us, Peter went out and wept bitterly because he had associated the love of this world somehow higher than allegiance to Jesus Christ. But here, hear me out. Let me tell you what I'm not telling you. For every verse that I can point out that says you've got to be extremely mindful about the way that you handle your wealth, there's another verse that says, I want you to be diligent. I want you to succeed. I want you to be a person of integrity and honor. I want you to save well. I want you to invest well. This is the book of Proverbs, through and through. I want you to save well. I want you to invest well. I want you to lay up an inheritance to your children's children. I want you to have enough to put your kids and your grandkids through college. How do you get there? So I'm not telling you that stuff is bad. Or that you ought to empty your bank account. Listen to me carefully. A bank account is spiritual. A savings account is biblical. A retirement account is wisdom. But we've got to hold these things in the appropriate perspective. Because God spoke about possessions, money, and stuff more than anything else in all of Scripture. More than prayer, more than faith, more than heaven, more than hell. God spoke about money. Why? Because this issue, more than anything else, is one that will determine how we interact with God. And if we get this wrong, it's tough to get a relationship with God right. So I want to give us three scriptural principles that will hopefully be of some benefit to us as we move forward, trying to figure out how is it that I'm supposed to, what's my worldview towards my stuff? Three things. First is this. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. This is the clear explanation of Scripture. There's dozens of verses that say this. Let me give you one. Psalm 89.11 says that the heavens are yours, and the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Because God is a creator, everything he creates belongs to him. But we're really good at legalese, and we might find a loophole in here, don't you think? Well, wait a minute, God. Are you seriously telling me? Don't you understand that my ingenuity, my, my education, my skill set allows me to work and get paid a very, very comfortable sum? In fact, everything that I have, shouldn't that still belong to me? Those accounts at the bank have, whose name? Look at them close, God. That's mine, not yours. Deuteronomy 8 is the rebuttal. This says uh, 18, but it's actually 8. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. I love that line. Praise God that you're successful. I mean, absolutely. Praise God that you have the intuitiveness, the go-gettedness, the ingenuity, the skill set, the education, the experience, the background. Those things are a gift from God. And what they lead you towards, a comfortable existence here and now, is a blessing, but it's all come from God. Even your capacity to get wealth has come from God. It all belongs to him. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. Everything you have, including, in, and the New Testament even tells us that we 
our own bodies were bought as a price. 1 Corinthians 6, I believe. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Everything we have, including our very selves, belongs to Jesus Christ. And that includes our stuff. The second thing is, God has made you a steward of what you have, and you will give an accounting for it. Uh, What's a steward? A steward is someone who manages the resources of another person for their benefit. Uh, We know this today. It's pretty common. I have a retirement account with Edward Jones. The man that handles that account is my steward. I give him money. He has no right to that money. It's not his, even though it's under his control. What's he supposed to do with it? He's supposed to know me well enough to know what I want done with that money and then invest accordingly to give me a return that's sufficient for my needs. That's what a steward means. We are the stewards of God's creation. And the things and the stuff and the materials that God has given to you, you now function as God's steward. But guess what? You will give an account for the way that you've stewarded the stuff that God has given you. He tells many stories, Jesus does, about this. Uh, Matthew 25 is an interesting one where a rich man who's about to go away to a far country lines up three of his servants, and he gives to one five talents, two talents, and one talents. Well, forget the two and the one for now and focus on the five. Five talents. Just one talent is about 20 years labor or 20 years wages for a working man. It's a significant sum. This rich man says, take this money, do well with it. I will return and require from your hand an accounting of what you've done with my money. The rich man leaves, goes to a far country. The Bible says that the man with five talents goes out immediately, trades, and gets five more, 100% return on the investment. Fast forward a couple of years, the man comes back. He lines up his servants again and says, show me how you've done. And the man with five talents, he comes forward and he says, master, you have given me five, and here's five more for 10 altogether. They're yours. Notice what the the servant does. He made all of that money, but he gave it right back to the master who really owned it all. And what does the master do? This is beautiful. The master looks at that servant and goes, well done, good and faithful servant or steward. Enter into the joy, or you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. And then another translation, or another, um, uh, he goes on to say, enter into the joy of your reward. Friends, this is what I want to hear when I'm done with my life. And I hope it is for you too. So look at what God has given you a sphere of influence over. That's what you're a steward of. Not other people's stuff. You leave them alone. Focus on what God has done with you. What do you have? How are you stewarding it? When God comes back to require an account for how you've handled your stuff, will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Because my desire is to be faithful in those small things so that in the long run, I can be faithful in big things. Friends, get this. There's no such thing as a big thing. There's just a series of small things. And God looks at the way that you handle, the way that you tip waiters at the coffee shop, the way that you file your income taxes, the way that you handle the things that nobody else would ever see. Those are the small things that are determining whether or not you can be faithful over much in the long run. So strive for faithfulness in the small things because together they will make you a servant to which God can say, well done. And I encourage you, look at the way that you're doing here and ask yourself, would God look at me and say, well done? Last thing is this. The last thing is you gotta remember why you're here. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, but you don't live there quite yet. You live here in the world 
among people who aren't citizens of the kingdom of God. One of your primary objectives is to be so attractive that other people would choose to think, what is so different about you? And can can I join your party? I heard a story about a man who pastors a church in Baltimore. One of the leaders in his church came up to him and said, Pastor, I'd like you to go visit my son. He's a gang leader in Baltimore. Pastor says, sure. So he goes and he visits this gang leader and he talks to the gang leader and he just invites him to church. I said, why don't you you come to church? The gang leader looks at the pastor right in the eyes and he goes, no, sir. No, sir, I will not come to your church until your church looks better than my church. See, the gang leader had a church, everybody in his gang. And he says, don't you understand, pastor, that the people in my church They actually like each other more than the people in your church. They're nicer to each other than the people in your church. They show up more frequently than the people in your church. They're on mission and they're doing more and committed more than the people in your church. So no, sir, I won't attend your church until your church starts at least looking as good as mine. Why don't you start practicing what you preach? If the church has lost a voice in society today, it's because we've lost sight of what it means to practice what we preach, and we've become essentially defined by the culture around us. There is no distinguishing mark or characteristic of the church in general that would make somebody want to say, I want what you have. Money and how we handle it is one of the defining characteristics of life. And if we're out there grubbing for money like everybody else, how are we supposed to be different? And how are we supposed to convince people that the kingdom of God is actually worth it? It can't happen. We've got to remember why we're here. So this is why Jesus stresses the importance of the way that you handle your stuff. Because he wants us all to be so distinctive unique among the world around us, not defined by the, what we call the affluenza of today, but defined by a characteristic, knowing that everything that God has or that we have, God has given to us, and we hold it with an open hand. And it's neither good nor bad to have nice stuff. In fact, if you have nice stuff, more power to you. Bless more people with it. You've got more resources to expand the kingdom of heaven. Pursue that, but pursue it with Christ at the center. And in so doing, I believe what will happen, this is what Jesus says. You know how he describes his disciples? He says, you are the light of the world. And if you're the light of the world, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is what we're talking about. If a person can look at the way that you handle your things and your material possessions and the attitude you carry towards your stuff, That's a good work. And if it's so distinctive, people will look at you and ask, how could you handle the loss of 30% of your net worth and still know that God is in control and you're gonna be okay? It doesn't make sense to me. Tell me more about this God you serve. They will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We need to remember why we're here and ask ourselves, are we being distinctive? Not weird, not fringe, but distinct. And in so doing, we create an example for other people to say, I think I want what you have. But where does that leave Peter? At the end of the passage, he was out there weeping bitterly. A good man with good intentions who failed his test. I've been there. And I suspect some of you have as well. 
So what's God's people to do when God's people have denied they even know God? Either overtly or implicitly by the way that we handle all of our stuff. Let me fast forward for you to John chapter 21. Jesus has been crucified, buried, and now resurrected. And this is the third time that he's appeared to his disciples. Peter uh, takes the liberty to go fishing. It's just what he likes to do. And so he spends the night fishing. As he comes to shore with a whole catch of fish, he happens to come across a man who, no joke, is sitting around a charcoal fire. And he invites Peter over. It's Jesus Christ. And they have this interchange. And Peter, on that seashore of restoration, hears the words from Jesus Christ, the man who he had denied, the living son of God who had gone to the cross to atone for the sin that Peter had committed, to atone for the sins that you and I have committed. On that seashore of restoration, God looks at Peter and he says, Peter, follow me. You see, here's the thing that we have so often in the life today is that we think that if God, if we think that we've gone so far from the straight and narrow, if here's where we ought to be, we're a thousand miles east. But guess what? If you're way over here, listen to me closely. It's not an issue of turning around and having to trudge another thousand miles to get back to God's good graces. He's not waiting for you to clean up your acts so that you can be acceptable to him. The moment that you turn, which is what the word repent means, the moment that you turn, guess who's right there to meet you, to love you? It's Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who seeks after those who are lost. He's not waiting for you to come back on your own good effort. He's waiting for you to turn to him, and he will, by grace, keep you where you need to be. You see, Peter got restored and he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and we never see him again deny Christ. In fact, he was crucified upside down, church tradition tells us, because he considered himself so unworthy to even be crucified in the same way as Jesus Christ. He went to his death for this one through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so if you feel like you have known the good things of Christ and have walked away, let me encourage you, turn. The word is repent. Repent of the things that you've done and the places that you have been and allow Christ in that moment that you turn to embrace you there, love you back into faith, back into relationship, back into faithfulness, back into restoration. He loves you. He's not giving up on you. So I don't care where you've been, come back. By the power of God in your life, he meets you exactly where you're at. And for that, I'm very, very thankful. Peter had his moment of restoration. He was used powerfully by God to expand the church and the gospel throughout the entire world. You're no different. Peter's not special either in his sin or in his restoration. God still works. Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we are your kids and you are our God. Father, I ask that you allow us to hold the things that you have given to us with an open hand, knowing that we're built to worship and glorify you. God, help the way that we handle our things be faithful and help our things not to infect us so that in the time of testing, our allegiance is compromised to you. God, I pray for myself and for all those that have felt themselves wander Father, I ask in our season of repentance that you come and you bring grace immediately at that point and you lift us up as on an eagle's wings back to the place where we need to be in relationship with you. Father, I pray for people here today to begin a relationship with you knowing that the path that they're on has deceived them. Lord Jesus, you are king and you are Lord and our lives are yours. 
the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen and amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.